What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to Off the Chain, simply the best podcast in crypto. Let's kick this thing off. Brian Estes is a Bitcoin OG and the founder of Off the Chain Capital, a crypto fund focused on finding value opportunities across the industry. Now, you got to give him respect. He found the Off the Chain name earlier than I did, so you know he has to be a genius. In this conversation, Brian told a number of awesome stories from the early days of crypto. He shared a few of their investment strategies that have been quite profitable, and we had a great conversation around the opportunities that are likely to present themselves over the coming years. This episode was a lot of fun to record, and I hope you guys enjoy it too. Now, before we get started, though, I want to cover the three advertisers that made this episode possible. The first is Crypto.com. You may have seen their Plan B marketing campaign in major cities like LA, Miami, and San Francisco. These guys are absolutely crushing it. Last time I was in San Francisco, I was driving in an Uber. I looked over and I literally saw a sign on a trash can that said, the $22 trillion money printing machine's not going anywhere. And then it said, Plan B, Crypto.com. Absolutely awesome marketing. Now, Crypto.com's a crypto brand that's building an ecosystem with services in trading, payments, and finance. Their app is a single platform that allows you to buy, sell, store, and track crypto securely. You can pair it with their MCO Visa card to spend your crypto. You can earn interest on your crypto and stable coins. And you can even use your crypto to get an instant loan. Like I said, these guys are killing it on the marketing. They've been a longtime supporter of Off The Chain. And you can go to Crypto.com, not a bad URL, to go check out the ecosystem that they're building around trading, payments, and finance. Again, that's Crypto.com. Now, a new advertiser to the podcast is TaxBit. Everyone hates paying taxes. It's super confusing. You always get nervous that you're going to mess something up. And there's so many different forms and information that you just don't know what you're doing. TaxBit can help. The IRS recently released new tax forms for the 2019 tax year, which require all taxpayers to attest to whether they traded cryptocurrency during the year. If so, you must file an IRS 8949, whatever the hell that is, and that reports your capital gains and losses. That's a IRS 8949. Good luck if you don't understand tax. Now, what TaxBit does is it solves your problem. It automates your cryptocurrency taxes. It enables you to effortlessly track, calculate, and report your transactions, and it easily connects your exchanges to securely sync your transactions and run them through TaxBit tax engine. You can generate your completed tax forms with a single click. It's founded by tax attorneys and CPAs. TaxPit's the most trusted cryptocurrency tax solution. You can get 10% off your tax plan today with a free trial by going to www.taxbit.com backslash invite backslash pomp. Again, that's taxbit.com slash invite slash pomp. Now, my favorite part about TaxBit is they've got live support with experts. So you can literally call and email in and talk to somebody who has experience facilitating thousands of crypto tax filings and IRS crypto tax audits. Again, go to taxbit.com slash invite slash pomp and let them know that I came. Uh, and Actually, I sent you. I didn't come. I actually sent you. And you can get 10% off your tax plan today with a free trial. Now, lastly, eToro. Longtime sponsor of eToro. Massive business, highly underrated, got started in Israel. They built this big business offering stocks, commodities, traditional currencies, and cryptocurrencies to people all around the world. Last year, leaped across the pond and came to the United States, and they got started by offering cryptocurrency trading. 
Now, I love these guys because they do two things that most other people don't do. They've got social trading and they got copy trading. Social trading is basically the ability to have conversation around your trading activity. You can type in an asset, let's say Bitcoin, you can go to that page and you can see an entire conversation. It's like having a social network around that asset. You can see people sharing information, charts, predictions, etc., all around that one asset and then trade there based on that information. Then they've got copy trading. Let's say that you find somebody on the platform that you think super smart, maybe a better trader than you, and you want to do what that person is doing, right? You would give them your money if you could. Well, now you don't have to give them your money. You can simply copy their trades. There's a button, copy trader. When you hit that, eToro will mirror your portfolio to theirs. So if they go ahead and they buy an asset with 5% of their portfolio, your portfolio will buy 5% of that asset. If you go ahead and that person sells 5%, now your portfolio will sell as well. They give it as just mirroring whatever that person does or copying their trades. So eToro's got social trading, copy trading. Uh, they're here in the US offering cryptocurrencies. Um, so pretty cool stuff. And to me, one of the coolest things about all of this is that eToro is actually larger than Robinhood, right? Robinhood gets a lot of press. They've got an eight-plus billion-dollar market cap uh, in the private markets um, or valuation, but eToro is actually larger than they are. Just don't tell anyone. It's a great little secret. I like the company so much that we even invested over at Morgan Creek. So head on over to eToro.com, sign up for an account. Let me know what you think about their social trading and copy trading features. Again, that's eToro.com, eToro.com. One more time, eToro.com. All right, guys. And don't forget, this is not only a podcast for Off The Chain. I also write a daily newsletter. You can go to offthechain.substack.com. I put my personal analysis, daily news, et cetera, all in that email. Shoot it out to about 40,000 investors every day, hopefully providing as much value to you in written format over email as I do with this podcast. Super excited about all of these different sponsors. Go check them out. They make this all possible. Now let's get into this episode and have a little bit of fun today. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys, bang, bang. I'm here with Brian, um, who's probably one of the least known important people in crypto. I think is a fair way to say that. I think it's uh, uh, thank you so much for uh, for coming to do this. Yeah, thank you for having me. For sure. Glad you live there. in uh, Chicago. Is nope. that right? No. Where Five do you hours live? south of Chicago. Where? Small town, 10,000 people in southern Illinois. Okay. So, so right you... outside of St. Louis. All right. Um, yeah, my wife and I decided to raise our kids in a small town, so... Not, not what's the uh, what's the reason for that? What's the logic? Um, there? my wife and I grew up in a small town, and we figured we turned out all right. So <laughs> we figured yeah, these kids, you know, we 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 actually looked at, um, you know, I, I got recruited by Goldman when I was younger, and um, we decided we didn't want to raise the kids in a city, so yeah, we just wanted to. Have We've a, come to New York on a day where it's twenty five degrees outside, yeah. so uh, you're uh, you're a trooper for making this happen. Yeah. But um, cool, man. Let's uh, let's start with um, kind of early on in your life, right? So where uh, what what part of the uh, country did you grow up in? So my dad was Air Force, so I grew up everywhere. Mm-hmm. So we moved around a lot. Um, I was born in uh, Vacaville, California, at Travis Air Force Base. Mm-hmm. So I lived there until I was six. Um, moved overseas. We lived in um, the Azores Islands. Where's that? They're um, islands off the coast of Portugal. Oh. So lived there for a couple of years. Um, Lodges Air Force Base is yeah. there. Um, what was that like? 
it was it was actually great. I loved it. Um, so I remember going fishing with my dad one day, and I caught an octopus. <laughs> and it like so I was like seven years old, and I'm yeah. like reeling this thing in, and you know I started crawling and like coming towards me. And my dad ran to the car and got a baseball bat and killed it. And then really, uh, yeah. And then uh, we didn't know what to do with it. It was like a baby octopus. Yeah. And um, we didn't know what to do with it. And but our next door neighbors were Portuguese. And we gave it to them, and they ate it for dinner that night. And it was Crazy. Like, totally freaked me out. But it, I remember it was sitting in like a five gallon bucket of water, you know. And I kept going looking at it and stuff. It was yeah, so yeah. Kind of scary, you know. So. <laughs> it's not exactly something that would happen in Southern Illinois. No, right? not at all. <laughs> so, all right, so so you guys are there, and then where uh, where do you go after that? Um, then we moved to Tennessee. I was there for a mm-hmm. few years, and then my dad got transferred to Scott Air Force Base, which is in Southern Illinois. Got and it. So from sixth grade on. I was, you know, until high school, yeah, in, you know, southern Illinois. Got it. And then you've lived most of your life in a wheelchair, right? Yeah, so yeah. L- let's talk about how uh, how that all happened. Yeah, so I was 16 years old. Um, you know, I'm six foot four when I was 16, you know, 200 pounds, you know, good athlete. Well, you were six yeah. foot four at 16? I was six foot four at, um, when I was in eighth grade, actually. Yeah. Jesus. When I was 14. <laughs> yeah, I was an early grower. Yeah. So, um, you know, and so, I was, yeah, I went to church that morning went to the mall with a couple of my buddies and we were coming home on a Sunday afternoon from the mall and uh, hit a pothole and popped the front tire of my car put me into a skid into a telephone pole and I ended up you know severing my spinal cord from a you know you know breaking my back basically yeah so you know broke two vertebrae my left leg left arm punctured both my lungs you know I was in the hospital for like two months so, so you're driving home. Uh, you told me before that it was on like a country road, right? You yeah, hit this pothole. Yeah, yeah. Skid so into I, I was it. in a Volkswagen Bug. Mm-hmm. So a 70, 1972 Beetle. With uh, no no, no, no seat belts in there. You know, the car didn't have a, v, a VW Bug. V-Bug, yeah, yeah. So you know, being you know a big guy in a little car, yeah, tin can. You yep. know, it got crunched, and when you know I was doing forty five miles an hour, so I wasn't going that fast. And um, yeah, so that's. Got it. Yeah. And, and so, like, what is that like? You're 16 years old, right? You're playing sports, kind of, mm-hmm. you know, I look, think back at me at 16, you basically think you're Superman, right? I was you a know? pompous ass right. when I was 16, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I, think, yeah. I think every young athletic kid is, right? Yeah, like, right. I've yet to meet one who, who's not. Yeah. Um, but then all of a sudden, you get this horrific injury. Is yeah. it something where they're, like, immediately, hey, you're paralyzed and uh, you're not going to I knew right away I was paralyzed. So I, uh, right after the accident, I was still in the car. And there were like legs up in my face, and I was pushing them away, and I thought they were my friend's legs, mm-hmm. and I can't because I can't feel them. Yeah, you know, and I was like, oh, those are my legs. So Got I knew it. right away I was paralyzed. And, and your friend ended up being okay. Yeah, he was fine. Yeah, he was totally fine because I, I took the pole on my side. Yep. So and so um, you, you you go. I'm assuming there's a bunch of surgeries, physical yeah, therapy, yeah. etc. Like, like what is that? Yeah. Just mentally having gone from you know the world at your feet to now it's like hey look mm-hmm. I, I've got to you know, I've got this long road ahead to actually recover from this horrific injury yeah so my dad said one thing that really you know actually said two things he said the first thing was that you didn't hit your head which is a blessing right it's I a good way my, to look at it yeah right so I got my brain mm-hmm. and the other thing is you know you play the cards that you're dealt mm-hmm. you know and that's how I live my life you know th- this is what I was dealt so I'll make the best of it and it really hasn't slowed me down. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and the part to me that um, is so fascinating when you talk to folks who have been through any kind of major obstacle in life, whether it's um, something that uh, they had to do from a mental perspective, something that they did from a business perspective, athletically, right, physically, mm-hmm. whatever, is um, a lot of times it is the mindset. 
mm-hmm. right? That that completely changes. And right. when you're the you know 16 year old kind of pompous ass yeah, athletic know, kid, yeah. right? Uh, it's almost like the physical advantages you have mm-hmm. uh, are good enough, mm-hmm. right? And so right. you don't have to have uh, as sharp of a uh, mental you know, mm-hmm. kind of advantage. Uh, and you see this in some of the most elite athletes in the world, yeah. right? You know, it's almost like they get more serious and, and mm-hmm. mentally change as they get older yeah. because their body starts to fail them, right? They can't jump mm-hmm. as high, run as right. fast, et cetera. Um, but it's usually not as extreme as, you know, one day, literally mm-hmm. just a, a point in time, right. you know, the whole mindset changes. Yeah. So, you know, it's so like, so I was in the hospital two months, you know, I went from 200 pounds to 140 pounds, wow. lost 60 pounds. Um, and then I got back to the gym and started killing it again. Yeah. yeah. So I ended up being able to, uh, walk with a walker with leg braces on. Mm-hmm. I actually walked up and got my diploma when really? I graduated high school. Yeah. Okay. How long is that after the injury? So this is two uh, years. Two years. Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. So, and it's not really walking cause I can't move my legs. Mm-hmm. So my legs were basically I'm like stabilized. Yeah. Yeah. Stabilized. And I was just like walking like Frankenstein, you know, (laughs) just like swinging my legs up. Yeah. So I I didn't want to graduate in a wheelchair. You know, I I had somebody here yesterday who, um, he, uh, he recently tore his meniscus in his knee. Right. So Uh obviously not nearly as serious, but, uh, he spent the last uh, six or eight weeks, uh, with his leg in a straight brace. Uh-huh. And, yeah, exactly. uh, Many people know I blew out my knee, uh, Mm -hmm. when I was in college and, uh, did the same thing. Yeah. And, you have to relearn how to use your limb, yeah. right? And yeah. so you end up walking around, and, yeah. and if you're not careful, you can actually hurt other parts of your body because mm-hmm. you're overcompensating all stuff. Yeah. But it's pretty cool that yeah. you know you, you say, "Hey, look, I'm gonna I'm gonna walk across that." Yeah. Right. Yeah, so, so that's what I did, and then I ended up getting a wheelchair basketball scholarship, play basketball at University right. of Illinois. We got to talk about that. Yeah. What, what's going on with wheelchair basketball? Like yeah, to I me, know, that there is... was such a thing when I was in high school. You know. Yeah. And I uh, got a call from. Because, you know, I, I was being recruited by Michigan and Oklahoma to play football. Mm-hmm. And I got a call from University of Illinois coach, a wheelchair basketball coach. And he asked, you know, if I'd like to play basketball. And last time I played competitive basketball was in eighth grade. And um, <laughs> when you were 6'4". <laughs> yeah, when I was 6'4". But, hey, we had a seventh grader that was 6'7". Really? Yeah. Yeah, so we did all right What are they year. putting in yeah. the water over there? I don't know. So <laughs> Could you was, dunk in eighth grade? I did dunk, and I got a technical foul. <laughs> yeah, 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 I did, yeah. It was a rebound. I dunked it and <clears throat> hung on the rim a little bit. And yep. Yeah, got kicked out of the game, actually. I so. I, uh, I remember being in eighth grade. There was nobody dunking, but we would lower the rims because uh-huh. they had their like the retractable yeah. uh, or removable rims. Mm-hmm. And uh, we used to uh, put it down, um, I think, like, I don't know, six foot, seven foot, whatever it was. Yeah. And... Uh, and they would watch like the dunk contest uh-huh. and kids would, you know, yeah. do the legs behind the back, yeah. all this crazy stuff. And then we'd get in the games and guys were missing layups. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? yeah. But you're, you're over here dunking in eighth yeah. grade. Yeah. So, uh, um, all right, so you yeah. go to play uh, wheelchair yeah. basketball. Yeah. Um, we won the national championship. Really? Um, uh, four years in a row. Wow. Um, no, it wasn't because of me though. Yeah. I wasn't a very good wheelchair basketball player. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, it was, it was, you know, Good to be competitive again. Yeah. Yeah. How did uh, I have no, no uh, um, inside knowledge of wheelchair basketball? Mm-hmm. Do you dribble or is yeah, you it dribble. Just... You get two pushes on your wheelchair and then you have to dribble. So okay. it's traveling if you have three pushes. Really? Yeah. So that's so basically, if I pass you the ball, you I could push, push twice. twice and then you and have to then dribble. You have to dribble. Yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, how do you stop? Um, you like put, like I'm dribbling right. All of a sudden, yeah, you, you're a one, defender. You use one hand. Oh, got it. Yeah, and then you yeah, just basically you just stop one, yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, you dribble with one hand and put, use Jeez. your other hand to stop the chair. That's crazy. Yeah. And it, it's almost like 
you know, like smash derby, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I would yeah. imagine you run into each other all the oh, time. Oh, yeah. And, you know, like you tip over and then uh-huh. your legs are flying everywhere. And, like, it's kind of, <laughs> yeah. It's a little wild. And it's five yeah. on five. Yeah, it's five on five. Full court? Yeah, full court. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. crazy. All right, so you do that, and mm-hmm. then uh, you graduate. No, graduate, yeah. Yep. You, you, um, one of the other things, too, when I was at University of Illinois is that um, I was asked to go to Cambridge University mm-hmm. to, um, to represent the university for the economics program. Okay. So I studied at Cambridge in the London School of Economics um, as an undergrad. What was that was like? over there. It was great. I mean, I... Me and Stephen Hawking were like two guys in wheelchairs at Cambridge, so it wasn't very accessible, and yeah, it was it was hard to get around, mm-hmm. but it was worth it. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was worth the sacrifice to 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 do that. Yeah, so. any like one or two memories from there that you're just like this like really yeah, uh, I mean, actually tells so, like what it was like. Yeah, so um, Sir Isaac Newton actually was a professor at Cambridge, mm-hmm. and um, so one of the lessons that we learned when the classes that we took was about the history of stock market bubbles and history of bubbles because he lost all his money Mm -hmm. um in the south seas bubble Mm -hmm. um died penniless and that's one of the lessons that we learned there so we learned about s curves and um stock market bubbles and you know the history of all that so that's pretty cool and that's one thing i've used throughout my career as an investor yeah so all right so you go you got uh University of Illinois, mm-hmm. then go Cambridge, come back yeah. to Illinois come to back finish to Illinois, out, right? graduate, and okay. you know, bachelor's do, degree. Do we walk across the... Uh, no, no, no okay. not anymore. Yeah. Rolled across. Yeah, rolled across. Got <laughs> um, all right, so you get the degree, yeah. and then uh, at 22, got to go out into the uh, into the world, man. Yeah, first job was at um, McDonnell Douglas. Okay. Um, you, know, you know, it was just like making $23,000 a year, pricing out contracts with a Harrier jet. Mm-hmm. And um, this was 1990, go for started there was a recession mm-hmm. um ended up getting laid off because mcdonald douglas was cutting back and i always wanted to be a stockbroker so i called around and i got an interview with shearson lehman brothers and they never, en- never heard of them yeah i know <laughs> so i ended up getting hired there go through their bro- new broker training program this is late 1990 and i'm um, really excited to do that and then the gulf war started in 91 january 91 and they canceled the training program really yeah so i was out there too and so, but the branch manager at Shearson um, used to own a brokerage firm with a, a guy who ran A.G. Edwards and Sons mm-hmm. in St. Louis. So he referred me over there and I went to go talk to Charlie. And um, so I'm 22. I go into the interview. You're 22. Uh, hold on. Uh, you're, you're 22. At 16, you're in a wheelchair. Uh, yeah. You win four national championships in uh, college. And uh, then in the span of, it sounds like a couple of months, you lose two jobs. Yeah, exactly <laughs> right? right. Basically, yeah. And All um, right. so I, I go talk to Charlie and... Um, going in the interview and we, we sat at his desk and he goes, how old are you? And I'm like 22. And, and he goes, I don't have very good luck with 22 year olds. And he just shut up. Like he didn't say another word for an hour. And so I started talking and going through my business plan and how, you know, I was going to bring in clients to AG Edwards and build my business. And I just kept talking and talking. He finally told me to shut up. <laughs> yeah, and then he said, um, you know, why don't you go down to the home office, take a test, interview with our, um, vice chairman. And um, Donna Casey, and you know, see where that goes. So I went down there, interviewed with her, and um, she asked me during the interview. It's really weird. She goes, "Pick something out in this room and sell it to me." And I was, I was thinking pick? to myself, like, what does this have to do with being a stockbroker? Because I thought being a stockbroker was like managing money for people, right? But it was a sales job, mm-hmm. you know. And and that's when I first learned that being a stockbroker was a sales job. Yeah. What'd you yeah. pick? You remember? I, it was a pencil. Yeah. A pencil. I, yeah. It was what was the pitch? <laughs> yeah. The pitch was that it was a brand new number two pencil with a 
you know, um, red eraser on it, never been used, you know, shiny yellow coat of campaign on it. Yeah, it was like, you know, I was pitching that pencil hard. You know? yeah. She's like, man, I got the best pencil in the world. Yeah, she was happy with that. Yeah. Uh, and, all right. Uh, so, so you ended up getting the job. Got right? the job. And uh, yep. and kind of what what was that experience like? And and I know you learned a lot of lessons yeah. there and stuff. So maybe yeah. kind of share some of those as well. Yeah. So um, as a new broker, um, you know, we were, you know, you got this opportunity to be broker of the day. And when you're broker of the day, you take in the walk-in clients or people that call in. So this is Do you like, want to be broker of the day? The older guys didn't. But right. when you're a new guy with no clients, yeah, you want to yeah. be broker every day. Every, yeah, every day. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so I had this um, elderly lady come in. She was in her late 70s. Her name was um, Mrs. Smith. Yeah. And um, she ended up being one of my best clients. And she came in. She said she came from her lawyer's office. And they just set up a trust for her. And she was a widow. And she wanted to get everything re-registered into the trust name so that when she passed away, her beneficiaries could you know, have easy access to the money. And she asked me to go to the bank with her and clear out her safe deposit box. And I thought that was kind of weird, but I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll go do that. And so we go over to Boatman's Bank and helping her clear out her safe deposit box and we get back to the branch and we're booking in the securities with the cashier. And I noticed that she had a lot of Walmart certificates in there. And in the way that systems worked back then, you had to wait till the next day till everything batched to see how much she actually had. So I asked her to come back the next day and we'll meet and review everything. So she comes back and um, we pull up the account and she had like almost $2 million worth of Walmart stock. And in addition to other things. And and this is in 1991? 1991, yeah. Wow. And I asked her to tell me the story, like, you know, how'd you get involved with Walmart? And she said her sister in 1974 went to work for Walmart and she said it was a good company. And so she ended up investing $11,000 in Walmart. And um, it kind of hit me like, well, you invested 11,000 and 17 years later in 1991 is worth almost 2 million. Mm -hmm. And after she left the office, I pulled up a value line report just to kind of see what Walmart did over that period. And I noticed on the chart that there were four periods where Walmart dropped 50% or more during that 17 year period. So there were four times where she lost half of her money. But since she was collecting the stock certificates and putting them in her safe deposit box, she wasn't, you know, she wasn't checking the price every day. She wasn't actually getting brokerage statements, mm -hmm. you know, because everything was in her safe deposit box. So there were probably times where she lost, like, it went from a million dollars to a half a million dollars. Mm -hmm. And she didn't even know and she didn't care. And, and that's really where it hit me that, you know, to be a successful investor, you have to focus on the long term. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't let daily price fluctuations and, you know, movements. And so you have to, you know, let time smooth out the volatility. Mm -hmm. You know, because everything is volatile. But if you add enough time to it, it smooths all that out. And I, I think successful investors, you know, could apply that, you know, that lesson. Today, yeah. Well, and especially of, in Bitcoin and crypto. Yeah. And, and we were talking beforehand, like um, another data point here is, uh, we think it's fidelity. We, we can't all mm -hmm. uh, do it. But when uh, Josh Brown from uh, Ritz-Holt came over, mm -hmm. uh, he came on the podcast, um, he said that there was a study done um, that supposedly has been scrubbed from the internet. And that mm -hmm. study was they looked at all their clients and said who had the uh, best performing portfolios over long periods of time. Mm -hmm. um, and they measured it you know, by appreciation of value, et cetera. Right. Uh, and the two that had the best performance were people who lost their passwords or who had died. 
Right. Right. That's and, exactly and, right. Yeah. So it's this idea that like yeah. actually, um, if you pay attention to the headlines, uh-huh. uh, you will succ- uh, succumb to fear and greed mm-hmm. and human right. bias. Right. Yeah. It, it is emotion. It is mm-hmm. why uh, psychological, um, you know, analysis of markets is so accurate. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, what we're seeing one is uh, obviously a um, very kind of uh, uh, rapid rise of the machines trading. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, right. They don't have those uh, right. those human emotions. Um, but also, two is uh, no matter what the asset class is, no matter what the market is, like there's some core kind of best practices, not even mm-hmm. rules, but just best practices that help people navigate these markets. And that's mm-hmm. one of them, right? It's right. just like, yeah. look, having very, very long time horizons is super helpful when you're investing in the right thing. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, how do you think how that compares today to crypto? So I mean I, I see it all the time, you know, people getting up at like three in the morning to check their coin cap, you know, just like, you know, yeah, I, I do the same thing, you know, but I, I have enough discipline now over thirty years mm-hmm. to just let it go, you know, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I've traded myself probably out of half of my Bitcoin mm-hmm. over the past six years. Really? Yeah, you know, even though I know that lesson, mm-hmm. you know, but I'm to the point now I'm not selling anymore, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and so what other lessons did you learn when you're kind of a, you know, young 20s stockbroker? Yeah. And, and I'm sure that there's all kinds of fascinating yeah, things I, that you I, did. Yeah. So another one was, um, so I really didn't know what I was doing, right? When you're 22, you know, so. You think you do. You think you do. <laughs> no, I, I knew I didn't. So um, I went to talk to Leo, who is the oldest broker in the office. Okay. So he was almost 80 years old. Wow. Been in the business for 60 years. Same company. Mm-hmm. AG Edwards started in 1887. So he didn't start way back then, but wow. it's probably, you know, 1940s or whatever when he started in the 60s. I, you so, got to respect somebody who's 80 and still showing up to the office. He worked there until he was 105. Wow. Yeah, he died at the office. Really? Yeah. Yeah. He must have loved it. Yeah, he loved it. Because what yeah. that, I guess that's uh, 85 years. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Damn. All right. Yeah. So you so go to talk to him. I go talk to Leo. And I was like, Leo, I'm new. You know, it's my first week here. Um, can you tell me, you know, you've been here for 60 years. You, know, like, you, know, how, <laughs> you must know something. Yeah, must know, uh, and he didn't say anything. He, he, he slid a piece of paper across the desk to me. And I looked at it, and it was a value line report on Berkshire Hathaway. And he goes, just put all your clients in this. And I looked at it, and it was $4,500 a share. Four thousand five hundred dollars yeah. a share in nineteen ninety one Berkshire Hathaway. Okay, yeah. and I was like, I was like, you're crazy. Like, no one's gonna buy a four thousand dollars stock. Mm-hmm. You know, like who buy? Because you know, I didn't know the difference between price and value. Yep, I didn't know how to value a company. Mm-hmm. You know, I just saw the price. You know, the price was four thousand five hundred, and today Berkshire Hathaway is what three hundred and forty thousand or something. Crazy. You know, thirty years later, and um, and that's you know one of the lessons I learned too is that. You have to know the difference between price and value. Mm-hmm. You know, like people today look at Bitcoin and they look at the price at eight thousand. They don't know what the value is. Mm-hmm. What's the value of Bitcoin? And that's what you have to figure out. Mm-hmm. You know, if the value is something more than eight thousand, you want to buy it. If it's something less, and you probably want to sell it. Yeah, and, and I guess really part of that is uh, not only one a lesson on Berkshire Hathaway, right, but also mm-hmm. just more systematically of the price and value. Did you learned that by asking questions to him. Did you kind of no, walk I, I away? No, I never bought and... any Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I was like, no. I mean, I'm not buying a four thousand. So how did you stock. end up learning the difference between price and value? Just over time. Yeah, yeah. yeah, over time. You know, being in the business for you know twenty years as an mm-hmm. institutional equity broker, and you know, you just kind of figure it out. You know, and looking back over my life, 
you know, like yeah. I should have bought Berkshire Hathaway at 4,500, you know? Yeah. Hindsight's 2020, yeah. right? <laughs> and I, I think that people are going to feel the same way 30 years from now when mm-hmm. they look at Bitcoin. Oh, I think yeah, 30 yeah. years from now, people are like, man, I should have bought it at 8,000, mm-hmm. you know, and it's whatever it is in the future. Of course. What, um, what, what was the first time you ever heard about Bitcoin or, or crypto? So it was 2013, mm-hmm. um, as a, you know, investment manager managing $350 million for mm-hmm. a small number of endowments and foundations in St. Louis area had a nice easy life you know raising the kids on the you know and um, saw Tyler and Cameron Winklevoss on CNBC talking about it um, at the time it was a hundred dollars and um, yeah I didn't know anything about Bitcoin I just kind of I thought it was kind of a scam or you know, I thought these guys were doing a pump and dump you know talking about <laughs> Bitcoin on CNBC you know they own one percent they're trying to pump up the price and um, so I kind of put it on my watch list because I'm a value investor. Mm-hmm. And um, so I watched it go from 100. And then Congress held hearings in 2013. And that pumped up the price to like 400. Mm-hmm. And then the IRS came out with guidance and called it a, called it property. And that's how they're going to tax it. And then it shot up to like 800. And then got up to 1,200. The Mount Gox got hacked. Mm-hmm. And then it crashed down to 300. And that's when I kind of took a dive into it. Why? To figure out. Um, I'm a value investor. I figured the suckers were washed out. If it was at 1,200, it's at 300 today. There's probably some value opportunity there, mm-hmm. and I wanted to figure out where the opportunity was. What'd you do to go figure that out? Um, I read the Satoshi Nakamoto white paper. I mean, that's that's I a good Google, place to start. <laughs> I go, what is Bitcoin? And that was one of the things that popped up. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I read that, it like clicked. Mm-hmm. Like um, when I was in high school, I used to code, mm-hmm. um, and like Fortran and Pascal and Cobol and all those ancient languages and you know I saw there's some young kid listening right now like what the hell is he talking about (laughs) so i had this you know kind of like computer science background when i was in high school and then i had a financial background you know being a stockbroker and it kind of all came together when i read that and i saw as clear as day how we were going to rebuild the financial system that we have today on blockchain technology Mm -hmm. and i told my wife i was like you know i need to get involved with this and um, it was kind of weird, but, you know, I, I couldn't sleep for like a week. You know, I'd lay in bed and she could feel the heat radiating off my body. And she would yell at me like, like, just go to sleep, you know, and yeah, like, yeah. I can't, you know. And so um, so I, I told her, you know, I want to do this. And um, I go, the best way I think is be a, become a VC, like a venture capitalist in the space and help build. And um, she was like, what's a VC? I was like, I don't know. That's what everyone else does when they want to build things. And so I kind of tried to figure out what a venture capitalist is. And she goes, how much does that pay? And I was like, I don't think it pays anything. I think we're like writing checks all day. You know? and, so um, it's the other way. The money's going out, yeah, not coming in. So she was kind of nervous about that. And um, she wrote down on a piece of paper, uh, you know, a number. And she goes, put this in the check-in account and go do what you want. And um, so that's what I did. That's, I pretty, sold, good. that's yeah. a pretty good partner in life, yeah, huh? <laughs> yeah. So we've been dating since high school. Uh-huh. So yeah, it's um, yeah. She's been a you know great wife. So yeah. twenty seven years now, been married. Wow. Yeah. And so I um, put that in the checking account. Sold my practice to Wells Fargo, mm-hmm. and became a VC in blockchain. And just kind of like, and I didn't know what, what to do. Like, mm-hmm. I felt like a new broker again, yeah. right? So what'd you do when, when you're like, okay, shit, yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm here. So this probably sounds kind of desperate, but um, I went in to like go meet VCs, right? Mm-hmm. And figure out how, like how to do it. And so I called some up and they want me with me. And 
So I, I know I looked on Charity Buzz. You ever heard of Charity Buzz? No, what's that? Okay, so Charity Buzz is a website where people donate items or mm-hmm. meetings, mm-hmm. and then you buy them, and that money goes to their favorite charity. Okay, that's a pretty okay. good idea. Yeah. yeah. So I, when I was look, flipping through Charity Buzz, I noticed there were a lot of VCs offering meetings. Ah. Yeah. So I spent about ten thousand uh-huh. dollars on Charity Buzz to get like six or seven meetings with VCs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So I met, with, I met with some great VCs. Yeah. Too. First of all, yeah. I don't I don't don't say names, but yeah. uh, I wonder who's on there, right? Yeah. And there's a bunch of people probably going to look. Oh, well, they know who they are. Yeah. <laughs> and, and two yeah. is uh, how do you set your price for something like that? It's auction. It's an auction. It's like eBay. oh, it's auction. Okay. Yeah, all right. Yeah. 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 So they don't get to set the price. It's whatever no, the market. No, yeah. Will pay yeah. For. It's it's an auction format. Okay. So yeah. So you all right. Start, so start, so start, you start go and you meet with them. And what's that yeah. conversation like? Do they do they take it seriously or are they? Like, oh, this is raising money for charity, and so they just like want to screw around. No, no, they're they take it's it very serious. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, no, it's you know, very good meetings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, what did you learn from them? So, um, I learned what a VC did. You know, like you know how to get involved, and you depending know, how, who you ask, they, yeah, I know. some of them probably have bad definitions. <laughs> yeah. So some of them weren't very good VCs, and mm-hmm. you know they told me their life stories, and some of them were you know the top VCs in the nation, mm-hmm. and you know I learned a lot from that, and. Um, one of the things I learned, I was meeting with um, one of the VCs at A16Z, Andreessen Horowitz, mm-hmm. um, and you know we were talking, and I wanted to get into Coinbase, and I knew they just did the seed round and the A round, and um, I asked her like, "Can you get me into Coinbase?" You know, mm-hmm. and she's like, "Well, why do you want to buy Coinbase when you can buy Bitcoin?" And I was like, "Well, because it's a company, and being from a traditional finance background, I thought the best way to." you know, make investments with companies. Mm-hmm. And she goes, no, 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 you're all wrong. She goes, all the partners at A16Z or Andreessen, you know, we're, we're buying Bitcoin, we, you know, Coinbase. We have to buy Coinbase because that's, mm-hmm. you are mandated to build equity in companies. Um, but she told me the partners were, you know, investing in Bitcoin directly. And I thought she was trying to make me feel better, you know, because I couldn't get in. And so eventually I wiggled my way into the B round at Coinbase mm-hmm. and, um, but yeah, looking back, I mean, she was right. You know, Bitcoin did a lot better than Coinbase. Yeah. So well, Coinbase I, has done great. I well, mean, I, I think, but, but I think that from the Series A, probably, but I think the seed round, Coinbase has appreciated more or no? So I got into the, it's either the B or the C round. They went from A to C round. Okay. But So was, I guess that's the B round. But yeah, they, they, they call it the C. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. it was a $480 million valuation when I okay. got in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And... Um, so, so today we're sitting at just under eight thousand dollar Bitcoin or so. Yeah. So, so and Bitcoin was four hundred. Yeah. When so Bitcoin went from four hundred to eight thousand, and Coinbase went from sixteen dollars to it's about two hundred dollars today. Got it. So, but so Bitcoin did better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it. And, and so um, you make the initial investment in Coinbase, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you've continued to do you know a bunch of stuff with them. Kind of, how did you think about that company, and why were you so bullish on kind of what their prospects were? It reminded me of AG Edwards and Sons. So it was a, so? a brokerage model. Mm-hmm. You know, they're making you know at the time it was one percent commissions on buying and selling. You know, and that's how we made money at AG Edwards. Mm-hmm. You know, we charge commissions to buy and sell things. Mm-hmm. So it, it seemed like a natural model. Mm-hmm. So and, and as I dove deeper into Coinbase, um, when you're a broker, it's either the agency model or principal model. And it, I couldn't ever get the answer from Coinbase. I think they're doing both. Yeah, explain uh, the yeah. difference for this. All right. So on a um, agency model, 
you're making a commission. You're being the agent for the client. Okay, so you charge a commission. On a principal model, um, you're making money in the spread. So if a stock sells for 16, and this is back in the olden days when stocks trade for eighths and sixteenths, if there was a spread of six and a half cents or 12 cents, mm -hmm. then you would make that spread, the difference between the bid yeah. and the ask. So, so basically, I'm willing to buy it at $13, you're willing to sell it at, you know. 13.50 or yeah, whatever, yeah. Whatever, yeah. basically, uh, we both execute the transaction yeah. And we're happy because yeah. that's what we were willing to do. Mm -hmm. But that difference between the bid and the ask is yeah, what the fifty the, cent difference the broker makes, yep. the brokerage firm makes. Yeah, which they and, love. And I was an institutional equity broker for you know fourteen years, and mm -hmm. that's how we made money. We made the money on the between the bid and the ask. And so when I looked deeper into Coinbase, not only were they making the one percent, but I and like I said, I can never get the answer. But it looked like they were making money on the spread too. Mm -hmm. And that's a great model where you're double dipping like that. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Okay, so you did Coinbase, and then what? What else did you see out there that you got excited about? So I tried investing in Twenty One Co. Mm -hmm. So I, because Andreessen Horowitz, yep. yeah, yeah, Balaji, and um, so actually talked to Balaji. Um, he said there was about a half a million dollars worth of stock left that Andreessen didn't take, and he asked me if I wanted it. I was like, sure, yeah, I'd love that. And he took it to their board, and they said no. So they're like, who's Brian? Yeah, yep. we don't know him. You know, and um, so I got shut out of that, which turned out to be, you know, nice because they ended up getting bought out by Coinbase. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, I actually um, looked at Digital Currency Group because I, I knew Barry mm -hmm. from Second Market. I used to buy Facebook stock through him when it was a private company. And um, so I knew he started this, you know, Digital Currency Group, which was involved in crypto. And um, I found one of the co-founders um, who needed money for private schools for his mm -hmm. kids and he was willing to sell me some DCG. So I bought some you know, DCG stock from him. So, so this is an important thing, right? A lot of people, I think, um, definitely unaccredited investors don't know this world exists. Mm -hmm. And then even accredited investors, in the most part, don't know that this world exists, where basically uh, you can invest in the fundraising rounds. Mm -hmm. So, uh, hey, the company's raising X dollars at Y valuation, and here's what they're gonna do with the capital. Bunch of people look at the deal, some do it, some don't. Mm -hmm. Everyone kind of thinks of those as traditional fundraising rounds. Yeah. Either alongside those rounds or in between those rounds, there are employees, founders, sometimes even investors, et cetera, that uh, want liquidity, but mm -hmm. there's no public market to go sell them into. Right. Uh, there's no acquisition or anything mm -hmm. like that. Uh, those secondary market transactions can, one, be super valuable, right? Mm -hmm. Because uh, it helps them get that liquidity that they need, right. whether it's for, uh, hey, we've got to liquidate our fund, mm -hmm. or I want to put my kids in private school, mm -hmm. or I just want to go buy my house, right? right you know, exactly. it, wh whatever it get is. Married, uh, yeah. yeah, get married, wh whatever yeah. it is. Uh, there's that, but also um, there's the ability for folks like you, if you're sitting there and you're like, hey, I want equity in this business, but mm -hmm. there's no ability to do that. Mm -hmm. Oh, I found somebody who has some that wants to sell it to right. me. And then you can kind of facilitate those secondary transactions. Right. It sounds like you've done that quite a bit, whether it was with Facebook, That's how I got DCG. into Coinbase too. Like I got, you know, I was told no on the B round mm -hmm. in Coinbase. And so this sounds desperate. I know. Listen, there's no desperation, yeah, right? It, so, it, it's what's required. In, yeah. So, so, required. So, so I started contacting, like cold calling and, you know, DM and Coinbase employees. <laughs> I mean, I know, but, you know, so. And what I, was their response? Like, was there yeah, any good so responses? I, so um, I ended up um, getting in touch with, her name was Kristen, mm -hmm. new employee at Coinbase. And um, she gave me a call and, you know, she's new, so she didn't have any stock. And I told her, you know, just let me know if you hear of anyone. Mm -hmm. I'd appreciate it. Next day, I get an email from Olaf. <laughs> and... Um, 
So, you know, he put me in touch with Olaf was the first employee, the first employee at Coinbase. And so Olaf put me in touch with people that were looking to sell. And uh, that's how I got in. So I ended up buying from a group of employees at Coinbase. Yeah. But but it speaks to um, kind of the persistence. Right. It's yeah. like, hey, look, you go knock on the front door and they say no. Mm-hmm. Right. Then you kind of knock a second time. No. Yeah, yeah. Right. It's like, all right. Well, look, I'm either going to kick the door in. Right. Yeah, I'm going in the exactly back door. Right. So, yeah. you know, yeah. I'm getting in the house. Somehow. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I was even thinking about I should just go work for him because I wanted equity so much. Mm-hmm. I was willing to, you know, if I can't buy it, I was going to go out there and work. And I love so, it. Yeah. And, and so um, you and Olaf, uh, that wasn't the only time you guys hung out. <laughs> no, no, we became friends. Yep. Yeah. And, and so, so kind of talk a little bit about uh, kind of your guys' relationship moving forward. Yeah. So it moved forward. Um, so he ended up starting Polychain Capital. Mm-hmm. And um, I had the opportunity to be a general partner there and, you know, help build that. And, you know, and it's just, you know, it's been a great relationship. And, and what was the thought process behind starting Polychain? So when he told me the idea, I, I told him, you know, it was the best idea I've ever heard in my life. I've looked at thousands of business models over my lifetime mm-hmm. as a professional investor, and, and this one's the best one I've ever, and it's still the best. You know, a cryptocurrency hedge fund building in this space with the, you know, with the macro view, the, looking out in the next 30 years. If you could do it like Olaf's doing it, which is, you know, the best way of doing it, where you focus on the long term and you're, you're building you know, this new technology and helping develop it at early stage, you know, that's the best way to help the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'm just blessed to be a part of that, you know, as a general partner and, you know, and I was also the first check in the fund mm-hmm. as a limited partner. Yeah. And, and so um, the thought process there being it's a macro bet on an industry that yeah, building is the super web small architecture, today, yeah. right? Super yeah. small today mm-hmm. would end up being really big in the future. Yeah. And, and I don't have the technical skills anymore to do that. Um, so when I'm out, you know, meeting with the team out there, um, I, f- I feel like an idiot, you know? Yeah. I, I, I have the experience with the financial background and mm-hmm. all that, you know, but yeah, I mean, those guys are super smart. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, yeah, they really know what they're doing and, yeah, I'm proud of them. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then you guys have done a lot of other stuff, right? So um, you ended up buying Bitcoin at some yeah. point, right? Yeah. And, and tell yeah. a little bit about, uh, you are one of the few that sold in uh, December of uh, 17. Mm-hmm. How, uh, what was kind of the uh, the the, um, the reason for doing that? Yeah, so we had like two pots of Bitcoin. So one is my, my personal pot. Mm. So I started buying that at like 400. It went up to 650. And then, you know, went down to 178, you know, so at one point I was down 60% mm-hmm. uh, on my investment. And this is when it was really early, right? And, you know, I was like, you know, I'm either early or I'm wrong. And so I doubled down on my research. Sometimes those are the same thing. Right. Yeah. Right. So I doubled down on my research and I figured I was early. Mm-hmm. Um, so I ended up, you know, buying more. And, um, and then at the same time, 2016, I had friends and family who wanted to get involved and mm-hmm. we figured we would start this fund for them. Um, called Off the Chain Capital. It's a great um, name. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we started Off the Chain Capital in 2016. Just allow friends and family to come in. So um, Wait, we got to talk about where'd you get the name from? My wife came up with it. No way. Yeah. Yeah. She's the hip hopper in the in the family. Okay. All yeah. right. So this is my. I'm the nerd. This is my the, big. Uh, th- yeah. This is my big. Uh, I'm shocked at how many people don't get the double entendre of off the chain. Yeah. So I didn't get it either. So she had a chain and right. And and, and, and so like, there's all these crypto businesses that have the word chain or bit Mm -hmm. or whatever in the names block, right. All this kind of stuff. But as a kid, 
we used to always say like, oh, that's off the chain. Yeah. Right. And it was like a kind of, you know, kids you tell you use all kinds of words, dope and you know, all this yeah. kind of stuff. But that was just a phrase that we right, used. Yeah. And so uh, the first time that I was like, oh, off the chain, like that's off the chain, you know, the, mm-hmm. the whole double meaning. Yeah. I remember being like, this is going to be so obvious to people. Uh-huh. Nobody ever says anything about it. And yeah, I don't know if it's because nah. they're all coming in from so crypto uh, specific. Yeah. Right. But like my friends are like, dude, are you kidding me? You started something called off the chain. Yeah. But they're not thinking about crypto. They're thinking right. about it in terms of the saying. Right. So yeah. the fact that she came out with that, that makes me like her yeah. already. Yeah. <laughs> so, um. Yeah, so she came up and, she, and like I said, she had to explain it to me what it meant because I had never Amazing. heard of off the chain before. <laughs> and so, you know, so I'm a social neophyte or something. <laughs> and, uh, so kind of live in my little hole. Yeah. Um, so so anyways, um, so we started off the chain capital, um, put about half a million dollars from friends and family. It, you know, spiked up to like $10 million in December 2017. Um, and I was getting nervous because, you know, I was hearing Bitcoin advertised on the radio and a lot of people were talking about it, but what the key was that um, I was at a Bitcoin meetup, and this elder, elder lady lady came up to me. She was late seventies probably, and um, she wanted to buy some Bitcoin, and she was talking to me about how to get involved with Bitcoin. And um, I was like, "Yeah, you know, it's probably not the right time. You know, it's mm-hmm. kind of high right now." And she goes, "Well, I want to sell my GE stock and buy Bitcoin." And at the time, GE was at an all time low, and being a value investor, I knew that was just the wrong move for her. You know, I was like, well, I'll, I'll, you know, sell you some of my Bitcoin for your GE, just kind of joking. Not that we, you know, did that, but, you know, but when I got home that night, I was like, you know, it's, it's the wrong time right now. Mm-hmm. You know, older, you know, investors are wanting to sell their GE stock, which is an all-time low, to buy Bitcoin was an all-time high. Yeah. Yeah, that's just emotion getting involved. Well, and, it goes back to your story about Walmart, right? Yeah, is somebody knows what the price of GE stock is, mm-hmm. and and uh, you know they're willing, they want to get rid of it, right? right. It's kind yeah. of the the feeling can't of, take the um, pain anymore. GE, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, and so uh, you go home and you so just I go home and yeah, yeah. I, th- I thought about it for a few days, and I decided you know it's best just to let's liquidate the portfolio. And so we sold eighty percent of the assets. Return the money to the LPs, and mm-hmm. and then the shell of they're probably the pretty GE. happy. Yeah, they were all happy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and we gave them the choice either taking cash mm-hmm. or taking the crypto. Mm-hmm. About half of them took the cash, half of them took the crypto. Really? So, so we just, you know, you know sent, I sent the crypto out to them. Mm-hmm. And then they wrote it down. Like I wrote mine down. I didn't sell my personal, mm-hmm. you know, Bitcoin. You know, I'm, you know, I just wrote it up, wrote it down. So mm-hmm. it, it's, um, it's funny because the longer that people are around, the stronger the hands get. They are, yeah. Right. I, I just saw the stat um, in 2018 or uh, 2019. I think it was at the end. Uh, Ten million Bitcoin haven't moved in a year. I saw that too. Right. Yeah. So you're talking about almost 50 percent of mm-hmm. all Bitcoin ever created haven't moved in the year. Right. It's pretty compelling. Because right? yeah. I think we're at 18 million have been mined. Mm-hmm. So you know you got lost, stolen, what you know, right. or destroyed, whatever in there. Yeah. The float's um, really not that big if you think about it. Yeah. Why? Why do you say that? Um, well, you got. Um, the strong hands that aren't selling. Mm-hmm. You got the million or so that's, you know, Satoshi's, right? Mm-hmm. That's not moving. Yep. Yeah. You know, I think estimates are like 10%, maybe up to 15%. The keys are lost, mm-hmm. you know? So the studies that I've seen, there's probably the floats around 6 million Bitcoin mm-hmm. yep. out of the 18 million that actually trades. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's really not that much. That, yeah. You know. It's crazy, man. Yeah. This is, uh, 
to me, I just think back and I, I say, you know, 20 years from now, when people look back at this thing, mm-hmm. they're either going to be like, these were the biggest idiots in the world, right? right I know. Like, <laughs> like, look at all these millions of people who yeah. are idiots, or they're going to be like, man, we yeah. missed what's probably going to go down as, you know, one of the most disruptive things in finance. Right. You know? So being a value <laughs> investor, people look at me like, how can you be a value investor and be involved in Bitcoin? Mm-hmm. And when you look at... Um, value, you look at today's value, but with Bitcoin, you look at the future value, right? What's the future value? And so there are ways to determine what the future value is going to be. So, um, and this was the hardest thing for me to get my hands on at the very beginning. It took me two years to figure this out. Um, like what will Bitcoin be worth in the future? Mm-hmm. And there's ways to determine that. So Tom Lee at Fundstrat came out with a great model. It's based on Metcalf's law. Mm-hmm. So if you take, if you square the number of users, multiply that times the transactional value that's going through the Bitcoin blockchain. Between 2014 and 2017, there was a 94% correlation to that model and the price of Bitcoin. And then from December 2017 to today, the R squared, the correlation is only 59%, so it dropped. And what happened in December 2017 was the ability to short Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And so... What that means to me is that someone has their thumb on the price of Bitcoin today, mm-hmm. keeping the price down because of the shorts that are out there. Um, that regression model says that the fair price of Bitcoin today is fifty-one thousand mm-hmm. dollars, and it's at eight thousand. So, if those shorts close out, then I would think that Bitcoin will do reach fifty-one thousand. Do you think? Do you 51, think okay, so, so this is important. <clears throat> it's one of the things that um, when people say to me, you know. Uh, what's happened before is going to happen again. Kind of mm-hmm. history repeat itself. One of the big changes that makes me think and kind of pause for a second is the shorts, mm-hmm. right? The ability right. for uh, the derivatives and, and to go short, et cetera. What stops there being persistent short pressure? I think there will be short pressure, but they won't be as strong. Yeah, you think I, that I, the I, longs I, I, are much stronger than the shorts? Right now, no. I, yeah, Today, the longs are stronger than shorts, but... I think the shorts will eventually panic once Bitcoin hits an all-time high again, because mm-hmm. then they'll want to close out. Because then it's breaking then it out. Rips. It's breaking out to new highs, and yep. when it, once it hits twenty, then it's at fifty, like in a very short time period. Yeah. So. And and to me, it's um, you know, when you look at the short pressure, it's really not that much, mm-hmm. uh, but it's there. It's there, right? And and yeah. so it, it's interesting to see. Um, you know, I, I go to look at the stock to flows, the Metcalf's law, you know, all these uh, different yeah. things. Um, that to me is the big thing is when you get this having, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what happens and, right. and do those models break or not? Um, because of the introduction of the shorts. Yeah. The stock to flow model is another great one. 95% correlation. Crazy. You know, so that's a good one. Um, there's a Bitcoin to gold one too. It has a 99% correlation. Really? So in 2012, it took one tenth of an ounce of gold mm-hmm. to buy one Bitcoin. Okay. Today, it takes six ounces of gold to buy a Bitcoin. And what that model <laughs> says with a 99% correlation is that after the next halving, it's going to take about 85 ounces of gold to buy one Bitcoin. Really? And that has a 99%. How do they spread. determine that? It's a formula that yeah, I, I found. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm not smart enough to come up with that formula, but <laughs> yeah, but I, I have it. So got it. Yeah. Um, all right. So you guys have also invested in uh, bankruptcy claims. Maybe tell us mm-hmm. a little bit about kind of that strategy, how you came across it, yeah. and how that works. Okay. So, like I said, the fund was you know 80% liquidated in December 2017, 
kind of sat there as a shell with you know, my money and my son had a little bit of money in it. You know, it was just, we didn't do any. There was no trading at all. Last summer, I discovered some opportunities and bankruptcy proceedings that allow us to get access to Bitcoin for almost free. Okay. So um, the way the claim works is that um, there's this custodian that had Bitcoin. They went bankrupt. Um, each claim comes with about $784 of cash mm-hmm. and then 0.15 Bitcoin and 0.15 Bitcoin cash. So if, uh, I, if I had one Bitcoin on this uh, with this custodian, mm-hmm. um, for every one Bitcoin I had, I now am owed $784 in mm-hmm. cash right. plus 1, 0.15 Bitcoin, 0.15 Bitcoin, Bitcoin cash. cash right. Okay. So that's about $2,000 yep. in value. And I have a claim. Like have basically, a claim. Yeah. It, it's saying uh, I will get this in the future at some point. When the trustee, when the bankruptcy trustee distributes the assets, mm-hmm. that's what you're going to get. Okay. Okay. Um, so, and the question is, when will that happen? And that's what happened sometime in the next one to three years, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're buying those claims, you know, from people who need to sell them because they have life events. Mm-hmm. You know, they are getting married or having a baby or need a house or they wreck their car and they need a new car. So they're like four sellers. So we're bidding on this. Fortress bids on these. Um, you know, we're, we pay anywhere from $700 to $900 a claim. Mm-hmm. And so we're getting like $2,000 of value. And that's a, and so when these claims get paid out, we're paying, let's say, $800, and we're getting $784 of cash. We're getting the Bitcoin and Bitcoin cash for almost free. Mm-hmm. And so those, those are the type of value investments that we're making in off-the-chain capital. Yeah. You know, and, and something like that, um, what's the risk, right? So so it's great. You put out 700 mm-hmm. 900 bucks. You get mm-hmm. a, a piece of paper that says you're owed you know, $784 in cash and then right. some uh, some Bitcoin, Bitcoin cash. Mm-hmm. What What's the downside? Yeah, that there's a, they there's just don't a, pay out? Yeah, there's a couple downsides. So one, um, there's one lawsuit that still needs to be settled with Coin Labs. Mm-hmm. And if that gets you know paid out, then... You know, you know that's probably another. It's gonna reduce the cash by sixty-two dollars. Mm-hmm. So we may not get seven hundred eighty-four. It's gonna be something less than that. Um, another risk is that if Bitcoin goes up a lot and the trustee decides to sell the Bitcoin mm-hmm. and it goes up further, then we're stuck with cash instead of Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. So there's some you know upside cap potential. The yeah. trustees said they're not gonna sell any more Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. So. That's what they yeah, all say. They, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but you know, there's no guarantee that they won't. Yeah. So. How um. How does the trustee in these bankruptcy type situations know when to liquidate or disperse? Yeah. Like, like what's the? Is it just once ever all of the uh, lawsuits are settled? Yep. Yep. There's one more lawsuit. Got settled. it. So once that's done, once then, that's done, then they're free to yeah. distribute. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, what other value opportunities you see in the market? So another thing that we do is we provide a liquidity pool for employees at blockchain companies. Okay. So, um, you know, there are a number of blockchain companies that are three to five years old now. Mm-hmm. Um, you have employees that work there. 99% of their net worth is tied up in their company stock, right? And, you know, and they have life events. You know, they're, they're like you said, married, divorced, babies, mm-hmm. need a new home, wrecked a car, you know, whatever it is. And so they, they need liquidity to help, you know, diversify their portfolio, but also just pay expenses. And so, you know, we provide, you know, a liquidity pool. We offer, you know, to buy stock from employees at these companies. And we generally get like a 20 to 30% discount from the last round mm-hmm. that, because it's an illiquid investment. Mm-hmm. And, so, and so that's another thing that we do. Got so it. We, we buy, you know, 
stock from employees of these companies. Got it. And, and how do they find you? Like in terms of it's through the uh, network. So um, I've been in the space for six years now um, mm-hmm. through the relationship at Polychain and Digital Currency Group and just mm-hmm. my network. Yeah. So that's how we, we people source know these. you're willing to buy. We're willing to buy. <laughs> yeah. So any blockchain, any employees of blockchain companies out there, if you have a life event, you need to have some liquidity. Let us know. Yeah. And, and it's funny, too, because um, when you're known as bullish around something, mm-hmm. naturally, those opportunities are attracted to you. Mm-hmm. Right. P- yeah. People start to realize, hey, you know, there's somebody talking yeah. about X. I think that this person can help. And, mm-hmm. and they kind of run over there. It's all and, friend. It's all yeah, relationship. Yeah. It's a relationship business. For sure. Yeah. What in the, in the last six years, what's the biggest things that have changed in the industry? Um, well, when Bitcoin first started, people thought it was going to be like a cash payment system, right? Mm-hmm. And that use case totally failed. Mm-hmm. You know, it's you know. Do you think it failed, or we just haven't had enough time for it to? Well, I, I think be there'll seen. be a cash settlement system on top of Bitcoin. Oh, okay. So, so, so I, I layer think, two, I, layer three. Layer, type yeah, stuff. I don't yeah, think yeah. Bitcoin will be. Well, I don't think we'll use Bitcoin to, you know, for a cash system because mm-hmm. you know if you're not if the block size is one megabyte. You can't use it as a, you know, there has to be something built on top of that that will interact with the Bitcoin blockchain. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, we don't know what that is yet, you know, and, you know, maybe Lightning Network or yeah. Libra Liquid or, or whatever, yeah. you know, even like Venmo, mm-hmm. you know, Venmo has the opportunity to interact with the, you know, Bitcoin blockchain mm-hmm. in, in the future. So you think they'll do it? Well, Wednesdays is on the board of PayPal and PayPal owns Venmo, so. Right. I mean, I don't think it's out of the question. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, you think he'll ever get credit for kind of all the work he did? What do you mean? Once this, just in terms of like, he really seeded Silicon Valley with, hey, this thing's real, right? Just the conversations and the mm-hmm. people he eventually convinced, et cetera. Yeah. And to me, he's like one of the folks in the industry who just um, has never really kind of broken outside of the crypto industry, right? If you mm-hmm. think about whether it's the Winklevosses, you know, Brian Armstrong, a, right. a lot, there's a lot of people who uh, I think are known as um, having done certain work to kind of mm-hmm. push this forward. But once this to me is still kind of insulated inside of the crypto industry. And so mm-hmm. it's interesting. He sits on the PayPal board, right? Yeah. You know, like, like it's not right. just a crypto only uh, thing for him, but, mm-hmm. but um, I don't know. He just seems like he's in a different place than, uh, than most uh, in conversations. Yeah. I, I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, he's a great leader for the space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we'll see. Uh, what's next for you guys? Like, what else are you guys looking at or excited about? Yeah. So um, we're just building, you know, we're out, you know, fundraising, mm-hmm. you know, meeting with people and, you know, just trying to get people involved. Mm-hmm. So. And, yeah. and are there any uh, investment opportunities you guys looked at over the last couple of years that initially you're like, wow, this is amazing and then as you dug deeper into it you're like whoa hold on a second that was you know shiny on the outside but i see those all the time yeah. all right well it, yeah, it's like I, uh maybe don't name one of them but yeah. can you can you talk about like why like wh- like when you dug into it what was the the issues yeah it just uh, it revolves around trust okay explain. yeah so you know you, you talk to people and they have this great idea they're building this protocol and you get deeper into it and you figure it, you know, you see it's leveraged up to hundred to one mm-hmm. or the business model is just too risky or, you know, there's just, you know, you find out that, you know, they're just not, they tell you one thing and you find out something different, you know? So yeah, it, you know, and like I said earlier, this is a relationship business and mm-hmm. if you can't trust the people you're working with. And I just, 
I don't deal with that. So yeah. I, I just kind of walk away. You, you sound like a real venture capitalist now. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I still, I'm still trying to figure that, that job out, you know. I think you're doing just fine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what, uh, what, what, speaking of that, before we get into rapid fire questions, uh, what's the one thing that uh, you know now that you would never have guessed when you first started uh, doing more of like the venture capital than stock brokerage? Like, what's like your I big would. your big lesson learned over the last six Wait, years in or so? crypto? Uh, no, or just from no. like the venture investing. And then venture? Um, what I know now. Yeah, just like what was the biggest surprise or the biggest lesson you learned that, that you didn't expect? I, I think it was from um, the partner at A16Z that she said, just buy Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I should have just put all my money in Bitcoin, you know, instead of doing any of the VC stuff. My yeah. life would be simple and, you know, like. It's a much easier life. Yeah, I don't have to deal with the companies and mm-hmm. the, Yeah. She was right. Yeah, I mean, she's 100% right, I think. <laughs> I love yeah. that. Um, all right, you've been around for six years, so these rapid fires should be good. Uh, most important company in crypto? So I like to look at past and future. Okay. Okay, so past, definitely Coinbase. Okay, um, why? Just because they've helped give people access to you know KYC, AML, mm-hmm. access to crypto you know, in a legal format. That allows in the U.S. To, in the U.S. that allow people to own it, you know, and and they did it the right way, mm-hmm. you know, they did it, you know by following the rules and mm-hmm. you know doing it, you know, doing a, a great job doing that. Um, looking forward, I think Backed has the potential Ooh, okay. of being you know one of the top companies in, in the space. Why? Um, from what I know from what they're building today. Is that you know? I think it's going to give people the ability to have even more access mm-hmm. through traditional financial means, mm-hmm. you know, because you know our financial systems, but with brokerage firms and you know just the traditional finance thing that we've built over the last 50, 60 years, and with backed being you know FinCEN regulated, FINRA regulated, SEC regulated, I, I think that's going to give the traditional finance people the ability to get exposure to this space with someone they're comfortable with, a, you know, that's owned by the Intercontinental Exchange. Okay. What's the one rule or regulation you would change if you could? Definitely the accredited investor rule. Yeah, I mean... At, one at this time, point, can we just call it a dumb rule? Yeah. So I, I met with Jay Clayton two years ago. Oh, did you? Yeah, All right. So what was that he, like? So it's kind of a funny story from oh, here. Oh, man, and you're okay. smiling. All okay. right. <laughs> so so I, I get this call out of the blue from the SEC saying... Jay Clayton is going to be in St. Louis um, at the Federal Reserve Bank, and he's looking. He just got hired by Trump, and he's looking to, you know, he's on this educational tour, and they asked me to come meet with him. And I was like, how do you find out, like, like how, why, why would you contact me? Like, how do you know who I am? And, um, there, you know, I didn't ask that, but I was like, ah, sure, you know, it sounds like a privilege. I'll go yep. and meet with him. And so I, I'm heading down to the Fed, Federal Reserve Bank in St. Louis, and I started thinking, like, like I started freaking myself out a little bit. Like, like I'm in crypto and I'm going to the Fed. Yeah. You know what I mean? With Jay Clayton. With the SEC? Yeah, with SEC. And I, I started getting nervous, you know. Uh-huh. And I, I get down there and I'm kind of, like, you know, jittery a little bit. And I, I walk in and there's two security guards. And they ask for my wallet and my car keys. And I was like, oh, kind of man. Weird. Yeah, I was like, weird, you know? Yeah. So I get my wallet, my car keys, and they walk behind a door or like another wall. And um, and this lady comes up to me and she goes, are you Brian Estes? And I look at her and I was like, oh. Was Who's like, asking? Yeah, I was like, <laughs> I was like, why are you asking? Like, I was like, I'm like, who are you? 
And why are you asking me that? And um, she goes, oh, our kids went to grade school together. I'm Lisa. And I'm like, I'm like, oh, yeah, Lisa. You know, yeah. like, and we started talking. Don't do that to me right now, yeah, Lisa. Yeah. And then the guards came back and they had just scanned my wallet and my car keys, you know. Uh, and then they gave them back to me. And then they escorted me up to meet with Jay Clayton. And there were a few other people up there, too, mm-hmm. to meet with them. And like I said, he was just on an informational tour. And um, so I met with them. And You're like, thanks, Jay. You the shit out of me yeah, today. Yeah, so... <laughs> So he was asking, what can we do at the SEC to make us you know, better? And that's one thing I pointed out to him. I go, it's not fair mm-hmm. um, to have the SEC restrict people from investing in private companies. Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't have a certain net worth or a certain income, I go, it makes much more sense to base it on knowledge. I go, Couldn't why don't you guys more. set up a, a website where people could take a test or get educated? And then if they pass that test, then they could be accredited. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, I, you know, it's not I, that hard. Yeah, it's two years ago. Yeah. And he, he but, but to their credit, I yeah. think that they are trying to move in that direction. They're mm-hmm. slow, yeah. right? But they're yeah. big organization. They got a lot of risks, lawyers, whatever, right? right? And bureaucratic. Yeah. But I do think that they're trying to move in that direction. It's mm-hmm. just, I think most people wish it was a little bit faster. Yeah. But I, I think that's the one thing that needs to be done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it should be your knowledge that determines whether or not you're accredited. Agreed. Not how big your bank account is. What's uh, the most controversial thought you have in crypto? Like, what do you what do you believe, and everyone else disagrees with you on? Um, I don't like talking about this, but <laughs> I know, so well, I, you came I'm on a kind of, podcast. Yeah, I'm gonna make know, you talk so, about it. So, um, I think Bitcoin's almost like a black hole. In That's why I suck in so much value that we can't really imagine how high it's gonna go. I agree with that. Yeah, I just uh, I don't think we can imagine. Okay. I, I I look back at people that were mining Bitcoin when it was at like a nickel and ten cents, and was eight thousand a day. They they could never imagine be eight thousand, right? Yeah. And I, I think in twenty years or fifty years or whatever, you know, eight thousand or it's going to suck in so much value that you know we're not going to know where that. So there's two goes. things here. Uh, I always think about the uh, Bill Gates quote. Mm-hmm. Right, we overestimate what we can do in one year, underestimate what we can do in right. ten. Yeah. Right, um, definitely that happened with mm-hmm. Bitcoin. Uh, but two is, um, if you said to me, "Are we overhyping or underhyping Bitcoin?" What you then have to do is you have to look at the potential. Mm-hmm. And I think most of us get too short-sighted in what it could become. It's really hard to imagine, right? If you think about the internet when it Mm -hmm. first started, even 10 years in, Mm -hmm. nobody could imagine today walking around with this cell phone, you know, which I don't use to make very many calls. It's a supercomputer in my pocket, right? Um, And and so uh, if you think about that, if you look at computing power, right, Mm -hmm. there's a a photo one of my partners tweeted um, that uh, I think it's like an IBM mainframe. Mm-hmm. Uh, that today could hold like six photos, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in, in today's world, but they're pushing it into like an 18 wheeler, right? right like, right. Li- like literally pushing a yeah. mainframe into this big truck. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> today, you have more computing power in your pocket, right? And it's only you know what maybe 80 years, 90 years later, mm-hmm. like so long time, right? Yeah. Like one one lifetime basically, mm-hmm. but still, that's incredible. And yeah. so, if you think about something like Bitcoin, if it works, right? right? If, if it, it works, succeeds, and that's a big question, right? Yeah. Okay. But if it works, mm-hmm. I tend to agree with you that yeah. it, it is, uh, it's something that we can't fathom. Yeah. And if you think about the basic concept of Bitcoin, I kind of look at it as DNS. 
So you had all these protocols that were developed in the early 90s, like mm -hmm. HTTP and SMTP, and, and DNS was one. And DNS actually has value, right? The, the domain name system. So back in the early 90s, I remember my friends were buying domain names and squatting on them. And I was like, why are you doing that? You know, mm -hmm. that seems silly to pay, you know, 25 or 50 bucks for Amazon.com or Coca-Cola.com. Mm -hmm. And that's when there was just a few hundred thousand or a million people using the internet. But when there were billions of people using the internet, those domain names became valuable, right? Very. You know, how valuable is the Amazon.com domain name today? Mm -hmm. If Amazon forgot to re-register their domain name and someone stole that from them and re-registered it, you know, like what would that be worth? What would Tens Amazon of millions? Pay? So yeah. my, my son actually did that. The, his high school forgot to register their domain name, <laughs> and he registered it in his name when he was in high school, and he was yeah. 16. What happened to him? Uh, no, he, he asked me if he should sell it back to the school. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, if you want to flunk out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I was like, you probably should just give it back to him, you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And um, <laughs> he goes, well, it's worth something. I'm like, yeah, it is worth something, right? Of course. Yeah. So domain names are kind of like Bitcoin. Yeah. You know, because it's, you know, domain, DNS is open source protocol. Mm -hmm. Bitcoin is open source protocol. But as more and more people use Bitcoin, since there's a mm -hmm. finite supply, when there's, you know, you know, billions of people use it in the future, it's going to be worth more than it is today. Of course. So I look at it, the Bitcoin and domain names or, you know, DNS all, all in the same package. Yeah. So. What, um... What's the most important book you've ever read? Um, most important, I know you've talked about Think and Grow Rich. Mm -hmm. That really helped me a yeah. lot when I was younger. Yep. Um, that but, book specifically, if you read it in your early 20s or like yeah, mid 20s, that's I, it, I think it's a perfect time to read it. I read it every three years. Oh, really? Yeah, I've read it like, you know, yeah, 10 times. I love yeah, it. I, 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 yeah. Uh, I, I, may, I asked my kids to read it for my Christmas present last year. Yeah, we had, book we had book club. Did they and do it? I, yeah, they did it. We, we we read the book together and and went through chapter by chapter and talked about it. And my kids are in college, mm -hmm. and they really enjoyed it. I didn't think they would. Yeah. And my wife read it, too, for the first time. That's awesome. And, um, yeah. So And I give it out to people as gifts. So that's a great yeah, book. So that, that's a great book. But the most important book I've read recently is probably The Bitcoin Standard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I just read that like two weeks ago. Great job with it. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's a great book. It, so. It's uh, it's one of those books you read like, damn, I gotta go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm not thinking big enough, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, aliens, real? I mean, the probability is yes. I mean, yeah, you, you can't. So there's probability of life form is 100. Um, you know, nearly close, 100%. nearly 100. Yeah. The question is, is it advanced? Mm -hmm. You know, is it human like? Mm -hmm. You know, you know you with a conscience. You think? Uh, I, I think, yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. Do they have pets? <laughs> that's how it started, man. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's like what? like. Well, think about it, right? Yeah. So how many, uh, we, we would we look at, uh, Joe, the other day we saw eight, 8 million species in the world and mm -hmm. you know, on Earth. Uh, I, there's no stats on how many of those species have pets. Well, let me ask you something. Weird question. Are but. there other animals on Earth that have pets? Uh, yeah. Or are humans only have pets? No, they definitely have pets. So okay. I'll give you a couple of examples. One is uh, we've definitely seen things like, you know, the kangaroo that puts like some other animal in its pouch and like rolls around with it, right? So I haven't that, seen that. Is yeah. it pretending it, that it's a kid or a pet? Like, 
our our human kids yeah. kids or pets, right? Yeah. Um, so that's one. Two is there's been uh, situations where some big you know wild uh, life type uh, cat, for example, mm-hmm. may raise uh, a dog. Again, mm-hmm. this is a kid or a cat, right? right. Um, or, or a pet. Uh, and then what I saw in this other episode was um, a friend of mine said, "Well, your dog has pets. Now your dog has got toys, right? But it takes care of it like a pet, yeah. right?" Now it's an inanimate object, so like, does the mm-hmm. pet have to be uh, conscious, intelligent, yeah. you know, all this kind of stuff? So it, it depends really kind of how you define the stuff, right? Okay. Without getting too kind of meta. So uh, aliens have pets, then. Yeah, well, well, so yeah. here's the thing, right? If the aliens are advanced, mm-hmm. because if it's just you know bacteria and stuff like right. that, then you know whatever. Um, but but to me, it was more of uh, it's a question that could really get to like how advanced, how civilized, how sophisticated are they? Right. Um, and again, it goes back to you know we think we're pretty smart, but like maybe we're the idiots. Yeah, there was something on the news, what, like just a couple days ago about some radio frequency? That Yesterday, that high-frequency radio waves yeah. from 36 billion miles away. Yeah, and or uh, the Navy pilots that, mm-hmm. you know, the... See the UFOs. Yeah, the UFO, those little Tic Tacs mm-hmm. that they have on video. I mean, what are those? Yeah, and look, part of it mm-hmm. is uh, there are probably scientific explanations for, let's say, all of it, mm-hmm. right? Literally every single thing you and I have ever thought about right. that could be alien-related has an explanation. Mm-hmm. There is still such a big universe out there. Probability is, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. the the scary part is uh, if they show up here, do we are, do we welcome them? I, I mean, I guess everyone's gonna be scared, but I guess you, the people who usually get invaded don't doesn't turn out so yeah. great for them, <laughs> yeah. right? All right, what one yeah. question do you have for me to uh, finish up? What are you doing in ten years? What am I doing in ten years? Because you're getting married, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm getting married. Um, Are you? I think that there's one core thing in my pop? life. <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> we'll see about all that. Uh, I, I don't know how much uh, say I have in that. <laughs> um, but uh, what am I doing in 10 years? I think that the safe kind of common thread through everything I've ever done is learning. Right. And whether it was um, learning from an operator's perspective, from an investing perspective, doing mm-hmm. you know this in terms of I just get to sit and talk to people all day and learn. Yeah. Um, I think that that's just like something that I really gravitate towards. And, mm-hmm. and um, it's similar to a question. Uh, I've got a friend who uh, he asks every single person he meets. He goes, if money didn't matter, what would you work on? Right. Right. And like some people's answers like materially change, mm-hmm. right? If you're, you know, especially if you're working an hourly wage job, you're like, hey, look, I would give this up tomorrow if money didn't matter because right. I would go do something you right. know, that they feel is more, uh, they're passionate about, mm-hmm. meaningful, whatever. Then some people, their answer wouldn't change. Yeah, They say, look, I do this for free, right? Or, or if money didn't matter, I'd spend all my time doing yeah. this. I think that for me, uh, learning is... Mm-hmm. Um, it's fascinating to me, right? I, I right. did an episode recently with a, a nuclear engineer who spent 20 years in the Navy, and uh, now he works on these nuclear power plants. I knew nothing about nuclear power. Mm-hmm. And I walked away, and now I'm like, holy shit. Like, that's a, you know, and you like right. go down this rabbit hole, right? Yeah. And, and so being able to do that over and over and over again, mm-hmm. um, whether it's in conversations or it's reading or whatever, um, I think is fun. The hard part is, do you do that from like a professional standpoint? Is that more of a personal thing? Right. You know, in what form does it is take? Is it a hobby or a job, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and look, and, and some of those things might be the same thing, mm-hmm. but it's also like what form factor does it take? Do you just yeah. sit around and just read books all day, right? Like yeah. maybe, yeah. or do you, you know, take that learning and apply it somehow? Mm-hmm. Or, I don't know, but yeah. I think that's just like the the easy answer yeah. for me is something around learning new mm-hmm. things is, uh, is exciting. What would yeah. you do 10 years? 
uh, 10 years from now, yeah, probably play video against my grandkids. Yeah, I don't know, man. Yeah. So uh, we, we never allowed our kids to have video games in the house when yeah. they were growing up. But and, the grandkids are definitely yeah, getting grandkids them. grandkids are a different story, yeah. So. I love it, man. So. All right, well, listen, thank you so much for uh, for coming and doing this. Um, you've got some uh, some amazing stories, yeah. and I think... Thank you for uh, having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, I think yeah. more people should, uh, should know you, and, yeah. and uh, hopefully uh, some good stuff comes out of this. So yeah. we'll have to do it again in the future. Sounds great. Thanks. Hey, everyone. Pop here. If you like this episode of Off The Chain and want to help us take crypto to the top of the Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, please do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. To review, simply go to the Off The Chain homepage, scroll down until you see the five blank stars. Taking 15 seconds to fill those stars in and leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. I appreciate you listening and see you next time on Off The Chain.